This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. In 1920, Mike Sweeney was an ex-St. Paul police chief turned private detective. His name rings in history books as often being referred to as the father of modern armored cars for his part developing the first commercial armored vehicle for his Sweeney Detective Bureau. This year was important for the NFL. (laughs) Well, I mean, as we've discussed numerous times throughout the show. September 17th, 1920, ring a bell. But this time, I'm talking about something else. Because this week, we talk about a man born on December 28th of the same year. And I'm pretty sure his teammates thought of him as an armored car himself. The thing is, this guy is not in the Hall of Fame. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast. Where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is December 28, 1920, and we're in the Windy City, baby, Chicago. This is a huge epicenter near the beginning of the NFL for the first decades. I mean, sure it is now, too. But back in the day, they used to have two teams. I mean, oh, wait. The season just ended. The NFL. (laughs) No, 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 no. This was the American Professional Football Association at the time. It would take another year and a half or so before it would be changed over to the National Football League. But this date is important for another reason. The reason is because this is the day that Al Wister was born. This is a player that is near and dear to the heart of this week's guest. And Wister would play a big role in the NFL during World War II era. So let's get back into the discussion with Clark Judge. Well, I mean, let's rewind that a little bit because like I said, back into the discussion with Clark Judge, last week we had the first episode, a part one of a two-part series, Clark Judge, a Hall of Fame voter. That's really the main reason why I brought him on the show. I wanted him to give us an insight, at least a little peek behind the curtains, into that room of the voters on Selection Saturday. There's definitely some very cool info in here for you. But we also get a little bit into what it's like covering the Super Bowl. Then we go back to his time and experience as a beat reporter. But if you haven't listened to the first episode, I kind of recommend you should probably go back, mash this pause button, listen to the first episode first. But how do you do that? Well, I mean, you can just go back to this podcast player that you're probably on. You can listen to that episode first. But the best way to do it, you got to go to the website page for Clark Judge on my site, which you can get there through your show notes on your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com, which is now going to take you over to my page on the Sports History Network, which is the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. And while you're on my page... Make sure that you go ahead and sign up for the newsletter to make sure that you're always in the know with what's going on with the network as well as the podcast. But for now, let's dive back into the interview with Clark Judge. You mentioned how it's necessary to go back to two seniors, going back to your state, your cases. If you could put your flag on just one senior from the past that hasn't been in, I'm probably challenging, but what senior would you pick? I'd, I'd go 
with two, uh, two but one, my first would <laughs> be Al, Al Wister. Mm-hmm. Al Wister from the Philadelphia Eagles, 1948-49 champions, um, captain of that team, great offensive lineman, played defensive line too. Uh, I, he was a, a centennial class finalist. He didn't make it. I was shocked, honestly. I was shocked. I thought he and Duke Slater were the two gimmies. And I don't know why he didn't make it. He played nine seasons and all pro eight of them. All pro eight of nine seasons. What, what's what's wrong with this picture? I mean, he dominated. And he was on championship teams. And he was an all-decade player. He checked every box. What is What are we missing? And what we're missing is he's not a current player. We don't have film on him. I saw somebody tell me that, um, you know, we looked at some of the film. He wasn't that impressive. And then someone else, actually one of these historians said, everyone looked at the right film. <laughs> I saw him play and he was a dominant player. So Al Wister, but 1A would be Drew Pearson. Um, I still don't get how a first team all decade player from the 70s doesn't get in. And a guy who made the kind of signature plays that Drew Pearson did when the, um, I don't know who it was, NFL Network or somebody, um, neighbors ESPN, did the top 75 plays of all time. And this was years ago. He was three of the top 75, including the Hail Mary play, which is a signature play now and a signature term in uh, pro football. But Drew Pearson was a great player and he was on a championship team and on and very good Dallas Cowboys teams. What did he do to keep him from getting the Hall of Fame? And what he did was he got forgotten. That's what happened. He got forgotten. And so I, I'd like to see both of those guys get in. And actually, my proposal now is that the 10 guys, the 10 finalists who didn't get in from the Centennial Committee, next five years, go two, 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 two. Consider those guys. Because that independent group thought they were the best 20 of the, those finals with best 20 of that 100 years. Well, then, if they were the best 20 and we put 10 of them in, then let's deal with the next 10 and move from there. Al Wister's one of them. To me, he and Drew Pearson should be at the front of that class. So how do you define, I, want, I don't want to say Hall of Fame player, but how do you define a Hall of Famer then, your personal definition? I, I think a lot of it has to do with eye test. Um, that's uh, something that is frequently mentioned within that room among the selectors. You've been around long enough. You can look at a player and just tell, well, there's something different about that guy. No one can cover him or no one can block him. Or, um, there's something different. And you can see it in the way some of these guys carry themselves. And they're just sort of it factors. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I noticed it pretty early in Tom Brady's career. And I thought, something very different about this guy. And I had, I worked with a colleague at CBS Sports. We had these raging arguments, Brady versus Manning. And I just said, what are we missing here? I mean, Brady wins 70% of his games. And, and, and then it started going to Super Bowl after Super Bowl. And then head to head, he had a you know advantageous record against Manning. It's not to denigrate Peyton Manning, great quarterback. He's a great quarterback. You know, slight, just splicing hairs here. But but if I had to choose the two, I'm going with Tom Brady. Because I, I know I, he can take me to many Super Bowls and he's going to win them. And, and I thought he had that kind of unitist type of drive in, in the last two minutes of a game. Ernie, of course, he used to say to me that the way you measure great quarterbacks is the last two minutes of a half or of a game, but especially of a game. How do they perform under pressure? And Elway's a guy that did that. Man, when I saw Elway, I went, whoa. I mean, and, and I didn't like Elway for a long time simply because I was covering the Colts when he turned his back on them. And he went to um, Denver after Bob Ursa made the deal. But 
I didn't think he could win big games then. And then I just was watching and went, God, look at what's around him. I mean, he's just magnificent. And I, and it was just, it hurt for me that he left, you know, the Colts because I do think had he stayed with him, Colts would still be in Baltimore and, and they would have been the championship team. But anyway, but guys like that, but again, like a Mike Haynes had mentioned, um, there's certain people that just sort of stand out. You go, it's a no brainer. You know, I mean, you look at Ed Reed, it's a no brainer, but then you start moving down the list. Okay. Let's forget about the eye test. All right. Did they play on championship teams? Not that that's a defining characteristic, but it's helpful. Did they play on championship teams? Were they successful? Okay. Um, Ed Reed was, you know, Tom Brady was, Peyton Manning was. All right. Um, were they all pros? Okay. They were. Okay. Now, I mean, we're just, we're going right down the list. Pro bowlers, it used to be important. It's really not anymore. Now it's a popularity contest. It used to be something different. I don't really look at that that much anymore. Um, all decade was a big deal to me is a big deal and this is some people in that room first team all decade means you're the best at your position for 10 years morton anderson was first team all day for 20 years so <laughs> there's a leading score all time at the nfl before his record was broken by Vinatieri, and he was all decade for 20 years why wasn't he in the pro football hall of fame and the reason was because he was a kicker that was the reason and that's not good enough for me and it wasn't good enough for the people in that room but that was a raging argument and I'm so glad we got him in. But also, how did they perform in big moments to a big games? How did they perform? Did they rise to the occasion? Were there memorable? You talk about Barry Sanders. You could probably mention off the top of your head, 20 great plays of Barry Sanders, 20 great plays. And unfortunately, he didn't play on great teams. Wasn't his fault. He was the reason they were respectable because he carried them. Are there guys like that? And sure there are. I mean, Dan Fouts is in there when he didn't go to a Super Bowl. Warren Moon's in there, didn't go to a Super Bowl. Dan Marino's a little bit different. He went to one, lost one, but all you do is look at Dan Marino and go, God almighty, this guy's a great passer. So I, it's all those things. And I think with quarterbacks, we measure them a little bit differently. I think rings are a big deal. Some people think that's unfair. I think rings are a big deal. Um, and, uh, and, and so championships do matter, um, probably more with them and head coaches than anybody else. Well, this upcoming year, you kind of laid out the scenario similar to Barry Sanders of a guy who's, I think it's his first shot this year as a Detroit Lion, uh, Megatron. Would he pass your test? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he would. Um, as a first ballot, uh, probably not, but he's getting in. I mean, he's going to get in. The, the thing is, we're so prone now, and I'm talking about as a group, to rushing these guys in first ballot that I think it's lost a lot of its allure from my vantage point. And that's just, that's an opinion, not speaking for this group. I'm talking about a personal opinion. We had at one point before this past year, the previous three years, I think, um, of the 15 Hall of Famers that were inducted, I'm talking about modern era, so five, 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 eight of them were first ballot. What's the rush? I mean, first ballot used to be, and a guy had the perfect definition. Someone said, what's the definition of first ballot Hall of Famer? And one of the voters said to me, the definition is when you stand up and you say his name and sit down, you stand up, Barry Sanders, and you sit down. That's it. That's all you need to say. Because in that room, when you're presenting Barry Sanders, you're expected to give a four to five minute resume summary of Barry Sanders' career, why he should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You stand up and say, Barry Sanders, you're telling us, I don't need to do it. Joe Montana. Jerry Rice, John Unitas, Otto Graham. I don't need to do it. And that to me is the definition. Brett Favre came up, Pete Doherty, 
in Green Bay was supposed to present him. He stood up. He said, I have a speech here. What am I doing? Brett Favre. And he sat down and we went, let's move on. That was it. That was it. So that to me is the definition. So when you say Calvin Johnson, there's going to be a discussion, you know, and, and I think he's, as I say, he's getting in, but why do we have to rush him forward when there are guys like John Lynch, Tony Baselli, who are waiting, they've been waiting. Bryant Young was presented as a finalist for the first time this year. He's in his eighth year. I covered him in San Francisco, very partial to him. He's a great player. He's a great player. But these guys who are waiting and waiting, and they're at the door waiting, and they go, all these guys are jumping the queue. So why are they going to the front of the class? Because honestly, some of these people just go, I, I, know, I remember him. Um, I think he's one of the best players here. Let's put him in. Well, yeah, he is one of the best players here, but these other guys have been waiting. Alan Fanica. You look at Alan Fanica's resume. Nine-time Pro Bowler. Eight-time All-Pro. All-Decade. NFL Super Bowl champion. What's he missing? He's a guard, that's why. He's been waiting five years. He's a guard. If he were a quarterback, a running back, pass rusher, quarterback, he would have been first ballot. But he's a guard. So we make him wait. We make Baselli wait because we say, hey, he didn't play that long. Well, what about Terrell Davis? Well, Kenny Easley. That changed the whole dialogue. So Tony Baselli's got six more years of eligibility. He doesn't make it then. He goes into the senior pool, and I think you probably read enough to know that that's the kiss of death. So I, I want to get these guys in, but I'm not in any rush to get up, up this year. Peyton Manning, he's going to be first ballot. Charles Woodson, I'd be shocked if he wasn't first ballot. I just think that's the way it's going to go. So what about these guys who are waiting behind? Baselli. You know, these, these guys who were the, made the cut to the final 10 last year, but now they're waiting. Baselli's there. John Lynch is there. Fanica is there. What, what, what? Why do we keep telling these guys next year and next year and next year? And it never happens. I mean, I thought Baselli getting this year and it didn't happen. So I know he's frustrated. I understand it. I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see rethinking there, but I'm not speaking. I think I'm probably expressing a minority opinion because I've heard guys in that room say, we put the best five guys in here now. And to me, unless you're Unitas or Rice or Sanders, uh, okay, you're, you're going to wait. You know, I mean, we put, we put Jason Taylor in in 2017. First ballot Hall of Fame, Jason Taylor. Jason Taylor was a Hall of Famer. I've got no gripe with Jason Taylor. It's going in. First ballot? He wasn't even first team all decade. He wasn't first team all decade. And so I just he was the only pass rusher in that class. And the guy who presented him, Armando Salguero, was shocked himself. We're like, whoa, where'd that come from? And as I said, he's worthy, he's there, he deserves to be there. But first ballot to me should have been something special. If you say Jason Taylor and sit down. I go, wait, wait, wait a minute. I got some questions here. You know, um, so th that's 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 where we are with that. And with Calvin Johnson, I don't think he's getting in this year. I think he could get in the following year. The following year is a little bit wide open, but within the next two to three years. But unfortunately, we live in an era where no one or few people have patience and they've got kind of the the um, attention span of a mayfly. And so they want things immediately now. And if it doesn't happen this year, you're going to find a, a wave of criticism. Why didn't he get in? And I'd say because Alan Fanica, who's got better credentials, has been waiting. He's a guard. All right. I don't care. He was he was a great player at his position. 
he deserves to be in. He was also Super Bowl champ. Sorry, I want him in there. So um, th- that's that's how I look at it. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's something that nowadays, again, it's I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. And you mentioned three players that I believe, too, should be in. I'm a little biased with Megatron just from sure. being a fan, but I could see the, I could easily see the argument on, on that other side of, is he a first ballot? Maybe if he would have played longer and he would have right. been a championship team, then maybe that argument could have been had a little bit more. Right. So I could easily see why you would, even as a fan of Megatron saying that maybe you should wait a year, that kind of thing. Yeah. As somebody pointed out to me, this, this first ballot thing has gotten so out of whack that, Everyone wants to be first ballot, first ballot, first ballot. You know, Terrell Owens did get the first ballot. He's outraged. Then you get the second ballot. Outraged. Oh, come on. You know, just, um, just grow up. Um, but as they said, you know, what do they call med students who graduate at the bottom of their class? They call them doctor. So it doesn't make any difference whether you graduate at the top of your class or the bottom. You're the same. Same thing here. If you make it in your 20th year, call the Hall of Famer, right? So, um, yeah, I realize there's some kind of allure to first ballot. But it's gone so out of whack that I want you to listen in this next year, you know, whenever they play fall, winter, spring, whenever they play. How many times you hear first ballot Hall of Famer? And I I think back to when um, there was a coach that I covered, (laughs) Marty Mornenweg, and he was the then offensive coordinator of the Jets, called Chris Johnson, first ballot Hall of Famer, slam dunk. I'm like, what? Chris Johnson? I mean, yeah, he had a great year and he's put up some big numbers. He's he's worthy of consideration, but no, he's not. And there, but the numbers of other people, had come up. Somebody recently said, I think Jason Witten, first ballot Hall of Famer. Boy, um, I don't know. I mean, he's going to get in, but I'm not sure about that. Um, and so uh, to me, it's, it's there's something different about it. However, you get in the first year, fifth year, 10th year, 20th year, all the same. You're in. You're in, and nothing can change that. Yeah, Marty Morningwig's not another name that you should bring up as a Detroit Lions <laughs> fan either. So yeah, I remember <laughs> he doesn't the hold a whole incident. lot. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't hold a lo- whole lot of clout in my neck of the woods. <laughs> but uh, as far as first ballot, I agree. I think that that term has been watered down, and it doesn't mean it's kind of like I don't know the, the the Pro Bowl. You bring that up too. That that really doesn't. It's like okay, yeah, you're 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 a Pro Bowler again. That's great. Show me all Pro. Show me all decade and. And that kind of thing. And speaking of the game that happens, the big one, Super Bowls, do you, you're always there for Selection Saturday, but do you guys actually get to go to the game too, or is that you got to pay your own way in? Yeah, I, th- I think I've covered the last 37, 38 Super Bowls, something like that. So, yeah, you go the next day. It's a long night. And then I, I used to get out Monday, but that's brutal. So I get out Tuesday now because nobody's getting out Tuesday. And the airfare has dropped dramatically. So yeah, the answer is we we stay for the uh, the game. So you're actually because you're covering it for whichever you know paper or channel you're with at that time. Yeah, that's correct. And and I, I do it because I like watching it. Um, I like seeing it. Uh, I used to go down to the locker room all the time. It's a waste of time. Uh, and then if you you're there, anyone could tell you there was if you're typing away, they've got transcripts of all the interviews that take place, and you'll be given literally a hundred pages of questions and answers. And as you're typing, you go, thank, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank, oh, thank, thank you. Th- thank and, and, and it's unreal. The NFL PR machine is unreal how it covers it. You don't even have to go to the game and you could get the quotes off the internet probably. And it, it l- would look like you were there. I like being in there, like seeing what happens because there's no, there's no replacement or substitute 
for seeing like a deep ball throw. I remember the uh, Super Bowl two years ago when Brady launched that pass to Rob Gronkowski. And the minute he launched it, you're looking downfield and you go, okay, he's open. You're watching the ball and the receiver converge. And you realize how great a catch it was when you see the arc of that ball and the route that he took. And and I love seeing that. I used to love going into the locker rooms, talking to these guys afterwards to pick their brains. But you, you can't do it there, A, because the time and B, because of the crowds. It's just, it's unmanageable. So I, I do enjoy that. And then go to the press conference on Monday, which is 830 for the Super Bowl champion coach and the NF uh, and the uh, Super Bowl champion MVP. Um, so that's always uh, interesting as well. Yeah, it's different than, like you said, back in when Terry Bradshaw came back in the league, there was Jew and another guy, and that was it at that time. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I said the joy of covering those teams then in the uh, early and mid-80s was you had you did live out there with the team, and the coaches got to know you, and they got to trust you. And we, we flew with the team. We flew with the team to and from sometimes, but always from. And so when you're flying from the game, players or coaches would come up if they trusted you and sit down and say, I saw you, um, you know, in the locker room, but I, I didn't get to talk to you. Anything you need from me? Yeah. Well, what happened on that third and five call? The one where you threw the ball out of bounds, what happened there? And, and it, it, it built trust. It, it, it got the story straighter and, and just, it, it, there was a closeness that there can't be today just because of the volume of media. But, you go back in coaches' offices and you sit down and watch film with them. I had a coach my first year of covering the Chargers. A coach who said to me for the last game, this game sort of, and it's not going to make any difference to us in the standings. And, and I said, yeah, I know. I wish you guys would try something we always used to try in touch football games that I thought would work. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, this crossing pattern. And actually, it's, it's what they use a lot today. It's essentially shielding defensive backs by running crossing patterns. So you have them run into each other and penalties are sometimes thrown for that. But in any case, he said, diagram it for me. So I did. And he said, thanks. That'll be our first play. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, we got nothing to lose. Game's meaningless. I'll use that for the first play. And he did. And he came back afterwards. He goes, I told you it was a course bleep play. It didn't work. I said, but at least you tried it, you know? Yeah, that's something that you typically wouldn't get anywhere else. That's awesome. And if you did... <laughs> And and it came out. The guy would be shredded. The 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 reporter would be fired. I mean, it it was it was a different time. It was um, I loved it because you got to know what made these guys tick. And 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 you cut cut them breaks too. You weren't trying for that wow wow moment. Um, I remember I, I honestly when I covered the 49ers and the uh, coach who was there at that time uh, was mentioned. By a GM in San Diego, Bobby Bethel was in the GM. And Bobby mentioned something that happened with his coach and that uh, the two teams had discussed something. And I, and this is before the sort of advent of the um, internet. So I had heard about it. I knew about it. I knew the coach. And, and Bobby had been a, a friend of mine in San Diego because I covered the Chargers. <clears throat> and so I went to the coach and said, he mentioned this and that you, you talked about this. Is that true? And this was on a Tuesday because there was nobody out there. And he said, oh, geez. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. You, you're going to write about it? And I went, well, tell me why I shouldn't. He goes, it, it just, I think it's sort of stupid. It doesn't make me look real great. And I said, all right, I don't need to write about it. He goes, you're kidding me. I said, no, I don't, it's because it's not that big a deal. Why would I do that? I'm not, it's not my job to try to embarrass you. 
I don't think it's that big a deal, but I was looking for a lead note item. I'll find something else. He goes, okay. Three, four months later, covering a game and uh, their game. They go down to the locker room. We met with the coach. Okay, after that, we go in the locker room, talk to players. He goes, hey, Clark, come back here. I said, what? He goes, did you notice there was a player missing, offensive lineman? Did you notice this player? I know his name. I'm not going to mention it. Do you, do you, did you notice this guy out there? I said, no, I didn't. I assumed he was hurt or something. He goes, did you see him on the bench? And I said, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I didn't look for him. I didn't see him. He goes, because he's not here. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's disappeared. We have no idea where he is. I went, you're kidding me. He goes, no. You cut me a break four months ago, and I never forgot that. This is my way of paying you back. There's your story today. And I went, oh, I was the only guy that had that. That's the trust factor. That was the trust factor. That you're building the relationships versus always just trying to get that, the piece that leads kind of thing. That's right. So I could have gotten that, you know, that minor hit that day by, you know, embarrassing him in the paper. And he goes, I, I wouldn't be talking to this guy. All he's interested in is trying to, he's a hit and run driver, trying to make a splash, you know. And, and I think um, some of that is, is going on today. I'm glad I'm not part of the daily business today because it's 24-7, 365. I just like, I, you know, I, I enjoy my sleep too much to be awakened at 3 in the morning by you know, someone on the Internet wrote something. I, 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 um, I enjoy the time I worked and I enjoy the people I worked with. And speaking of that, it's been like, what, four decades now in the business. If you could go back in time, sorry to make that throw in any reminding you about it, I guess. But if you could go back in time and give yourself before you were this Baltimore Colts first timer a piece of advice, what would you have told yourself with all the knowledge that you've gained? Don't be afraid to ask the tough question. And and don't don't be intimidated by writing the tough story. That's tough. If you're in a locker room and you're critical of someone, you've got to face the music the next day. And, and I've been in there. It's tough. It's a tough position to be in. Don't be a hit and run driver. Stand by. Have a conviction about what you write. Um, again, write from conviction. If you believe in something, stand by it because you're going to get criticized. I was told from the very beginning, the minute you put something out on paper, people aren't going to like it. Don't be afraid of that. People are going to criticize you, mock you, that sort of thing. That's part of the business. You've got to have a thick skin. And that's, that's, that's tough to acquire. I mean, I, I, I found times I was really sensitive to criticism. And sometimes today I find some of the stuff that people say is like, oh, gosh, that's tough for, to hear about certain individuals, even if they you know, say about me or say, oh, God, it's tough to hear. But stand by your convictions. And, and I, I went into the 49ers locker room once and, and I gravitated over towards the offensive linemen. And they were a great group of guys to deal with. They, they knew what was going on, as do most offensive linemen. They really know what's going on because they communicate with each other. They, they know what's happening. And, 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 I, and I love dealing with them because of the kind of the anonymous players on the football team. No one knows who they are, but they serve an indispensable role, play an indispensable role. Um, but I sat down with them, and, and one of the guys said, hey, this guy, you know, he, he said this about you the other day. And, and then, what do you have to say about that? And I said, I said that about him because of this and that. And. And then another guy said something. I said, because of this and that. And then I'll never forget. I said, okay, guys, see you. See you tomorrow. And a guy said, hey, wait a second. You know, one thing I respect about you, you're here every day and you're over here talking to us and you stand by what you say. I respect that. I'll always talk to you. I don't agree necessarily what you say, but I respect the fact that you come around here. And that meant a lot to me. It really did. And, and, um, and he said, you know, you can talk to me anytime. I may not give you what you want. But you can talk to me. And then I realized what it was all about. And, and, and also, you know, these are 
these are people. I mean, they're, they, some people look at them as celebrities, but I, I looked at them as just, they're just they're people who are, who are on TV and extraordinary athletes. There's some good ones, there's some bad ones, there's some okay ones, but I find them fascinating to deal with because what makes Tom Brady so competitive? What gives him that drive to win? I, I'd like to find what that is. With Jerry Rice, I love dealing with Jerry Rice because he was a complicated guy, and I never quite understood him until the end of his career. Steve Young, I love being around him because he was so accessible. I mean, these quarterbacks today, honestly, sometimes they, they, they get them, what, like once a week? I could get Steve Young six days out of the seven. And I always tell this story about my first year on the job. I went out on a Tuesday, players day off. My car died because it was raining. I left the lights on. I do that a lot. Left the lights on. It was dead. Went to the guy at the um, front desk. There's nobody in the building. I said, do you have a pair of jumper cables, anything? And, and Steve Young comes out. He'd been working out that day. I went, whoa, Steve Young. And I'm just, I'm covering this team for the first. He goes, you knew the guy on the beat, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, what's the problem? I said, my car is dead. And he goes, let's jump it. I went, what? He goes, let's go. He goes out, jumps it. And, and I mean, it's just a regular guy. He's just doing what, you know, guys are doing. You go, well, well, no, it's Steve. No, it's just a guy. He's a guy who's an extraordinary athlete and knows how to play the game of football very well. So I love dealing with guys like that and, and trying to portray them for what they are, not what you think they should be or um, could be. But that's, yeah, I, I had to sort of get over my starstruck eyes when I first came in Baltimore Colts. Oh my God. And then realize it's just, you're covering another beat. It's an, it's like covering the board of ed, or, except these are people that kids like you idolize when you're young, you know, and um, that's it. It's just, don't be afraid to write what you believe, what you think, and 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 stand by it. But you've got to stand by, especially for beat reporting. Got to be out there every day and don't run for cover, um, because if you get criticized, that's part of the whole deal. Well, speaking of getting awestruck and starstruck, uh, I'm going to give you the virtual keys to my DeLorean right now. I don't know if you could see that, but you you can go back in time to any point, and let's say before your viewing time before you were actually alive and remember that 58 game if you can go back to any moment in nfl history to be there and present where would you go uh it's a good question um boy that's one i haven't thought of before i'd i'd probably like to go to any one of autograms championship games to see what made this guy tick i mean he wasn't just a great quarterback he played on an NBA championship team in Syracuse. Man, I did it all. And maybe, maybe United's his first game because it was cold. I, I've seen it on film. I've watched it. He stunk. Um, but just to watch him and just see what they saw in him, you know, to keep going back to him. But, um, but I'd say, yeah, autogram just fascinates me. And I, I, I'd like to, I mean, that, that Cleveland Browns team was a great team. Mary Motley, great players, you know, Matt Speedy, um, great players. So, Probably any one of those teams, and and um, maybe when they played the Rams in the early fifties, because the Rams were loaded, kind of loaded with talent. But yeah, I because I, I'm I'm just thinking like the Warriors. I'd love to have seen Sammy Ball play. Probably that seventy three nothing game would have been fun to see, even though uh, <laughs> that was the Bears. <laughs> Sid Luckman, but um, but yeah, probably Graham. I, I just because I I'm just in awe of as I said, ten years, ten championships. Well, I realize you know. Some of that was with the All-American Football Conference. I understand that, but doesn't denigrate what he did. Wherever he was, he was a champion. Doesn't that make him a great player? As to me, the fact that he played in a championship game every year there, whoa, I mean, and he won seven of them, geez, I mean, like, 
what's missing here? Um, how can you not consider him one of the all-time greatest at his position? He was at the time he played. There was no one better than him. So that that's that. I, I would like to see what made my father so fond of him and others because I kind of know from looking at a resume, but I never saw him play. Would have liked to have been a stadium in the stadium in Cleveland to have watched him play. Or maybe even after the game, like you said, have a chance to stand outside and talk to him about five minutes and just try to get into his head and see what he thinks or how he thinks. Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's right. And, and because that's that's so fascinating to me how different the game is that you perceive to how the players perceive it. And and Fouts is one of those guys that sort of clued me on that. He was very tough to interview. But after games, would he be asked about interceptions? And it seems so simple to people up in the press box. You go, well, what did you see? And all of a sudden, the reporters put on the defensive, and and they said, where did you see the, the quarterback fight? Where was the safety? Where did you see the linebacker? Where, and uh, you didn't see him? Apparently, you weren't paying attention. That was his way of turning the tables on them. But, yeah, I always loved hearing how the players talk down the field because if you're on the field, which we used to be on the field for the last two minutes of every game, it's just bodies going like this. And you go, how does anyone make out what's happening? I mean, it's just, I honestly don't know how they do that. And some offensive coordinators and defense, defensive coordinators who work from the sidelines, how do they do that? Because what are you seeing? Don't you have to be above to look down to see how it is? You know, kind of like a Game Boy or something. And, you know, that's way back. But um, watching some of those uh, films and, and seeing, okay, I, I got it. But no, um, they can do that. How is that possible? Um, so anyway, yeah, probably Graham. Yeah, that fascinates me too. Just like you said, if you're sitting on the sidelines and how do you just see everything like that and how much information overload essentially in my mind that goes through them in a split second. And I'm just thinking about the way you're a writer and you've been for, geez, you've probably written so many words. Did you ever go back and read people like Grantland Rice and some of the writers of that? I mean, did that give you inspiration as far as their different style or how did, you know, what do you think about Grantland Rice? Yeah, no, I, I've, I've read him. I've read many and, and I, I wouldn't say all of the great writers, but that I consider great writers would probably have a difference of opinion there, but guys that I really admired and tried to um, not imitate, but learn from some of the styles and, um, and some of the lessons and, um, I remember Dan Jenkins saying once, Dan Jenkins is a great writer. He's a great writer. But he said, which I think is absolutely true, if you're covering a game, do it from the vantage point of one play. One play. And I didn't do that for most of my career because I wasn't aware of Dan Jenkins saying at that time. But either take one play, one moment, whatever, and analyze that. So, for instance, my first year on the beat in San Francisco, fifth game of the year, Steve Young is benched in the third quarter of the game because they're getting drilled by Philadelphia and smoked. And George Seifert was the head coach, and as he passes George Seifert, Seifert says something to him, and, and there's an angry exchange. There's your story. Forget the game. There's your story. Everyone's going to know the score, the score by tomorrow morning. They're all going to know that. There's your story. And then I go to, you know, let's – Fast forward to more modern times, at least, and more um, uh, times that are more recent. 2007 Super Bowl, the David Tyree catch. I mean, that's the game. You know, the, the 2011 Super Bowl, the Manningham 
catch. You know, th those two plays. I mean, those are Super Bowl Hall of Fame moments for Eli Manning, Hall of Fame moments. You know, those, those are um, defining moments for players like that. And so focus on something concrete and then sort of narrow it down. But focus on that one play or that one incident or maybe somebody said something during the game or something like that. <clears throat> but I, you know, I thought that was that was great advice. But I would I, I would look at and listen to people like that and and see some styles that I really admired. And when I went out the West Coast, I read the LA Times all the time and wonderful writers out there. But you know, Jim Murray's a great columnist. I'm not a columnist, but he's a great columnist. I'm, I could never write like this. Um, but you you can learn some tricks from them. Uh, Curry Kirkpatrick wrote for the SI. You can learn some tricks from how they some phrases they turn. Oh wait, Matt, I can do that. I could use this. I could try that. There, there were um, beat writers that I admired in your in your town. Mike O'Hara, Kurt Sylvester, great writers. I mean, and and knew the team. They knew the team. They knew everything that's going to happen. Ed Bouchette in Pittsburgh. He knows what's going to happen with that team. In in Pittsburgh, when Vito Stellina was there, knew everything was going to happen. May not have been the greatest writer. He was good, but I loved what he was looking at and how he was doing it. And and I also thought today you you could do it. You could do it in a couple of ways, but I always thought you have to make it informative and entertaining, not one at the expense of the other, but can make them both. Now, if it's, you know, a story about serious injury, so it's not going to be entertaining. Um, but if you've got a story about a football game, it should be the football game, you know, an award or whatever. But uh, have some fun with it uh, unless the, the subject demands that absolutely not, you know, tragedy, whatever. Um, injury anything like that uh firing them uh there's a nice balance there and and sometimes i think today we're too often getting away from the informing we're all, we're more into provoking than we are into informing so because it's all about um page views you know so let's provoke them and and i always thought are we here to inform them i mean inform them and and sort of and entertain them but inform them in any case uh yeah that's so I look at it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I use the, the term or the, the guy Grantland Rice just because he's one of them that keeps popping up. I like the, the galloping ghost, the Red Grange, and the, the four horsemen, just reading through those. It just always struck me as those were different times. And then nowadays, I feel like, then I'm, I'm one, I'm a first one to blame. I don't read a newspaper. I, the articles on the internet to me are like fairly similar. I listen to podcasts. And every now and then the radio, but basically it's podcast for mostly everything. And I feel like there's been a change. I wonder if at some point in time we're missing things out as just listening versus reading the, the word and even having that physical paper. Yeah, no, I think so. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to measure the uh, reading interests of this country because my wife's a, a voracious reader and she tells me that uh, some book sales are, are, are going very well. I don't know that. Um, but uh, I would say that it's a much more visual audience today than it is um, uh, one that reads papers, you know, broadcast that more interesting broadcast than they are in publications. So I find that disappointing because I've always thought there's a power in the written word, the printed word, um, real power to when you read some of these writers. Uh, I mean, I'm reading something I'm, I'm reading. I've been reading novels by Richard Russo lately. And, See, he's such a great, he does a great job of, of describing character and, but it's with powerful words, great writer. And, and, and to me, great writing is a, is a, um, a, a rare art and, and, and 
uh, and, and something extraordinarily beautiful. And I love reading great writers. And, and we had a, an abundance of them when I was younger. We don't now because you mentioned the newspapers are pretty much gone. And, and so we're the great writers. And there's some great writers who've been sort of put out to pasture and no one's taken advantage of them. And so maybe they're writing a book or something. But um, I mean, uh, one of my, my favorite guys was Lee Montville in the Boston Globe. He's my favorite columnist. And I still correspond with him some. And I just kind of go, corresponding with Lee frickin' Montville. This guy's great. He was a great, great writer. Um, and he still is. He's a great writer. And he's put out some books. But to me, it's a tragedy that, I say tragedy, but it's sad that people aren't reading him every day. And, and, and so everything, my daughter's the same way. She doesn't want to read. She wants to see it on YouTube or she wants to see, she wants to see a podcast. And I said, there's so much that you can get um, with the descriptions of people and, and um, the way a story is portrayed in, in the written word. And obviously, maybe people say there's a bias there because what you're getting is unvarnished quotes here. And so I can't say I was quote misquoted because there it is right there. But I, I think there's a beauty in laying out a story that uh, I don't see so much anymore. <clears throat> that's just the way it is. I mean, I, I, as I said, I'm old school. People could say, he's an old guy. That's why. Well, yeah, but I loved reading and I love the power of the, the printed word. Yeah, it's for me too. Like even because I I do enjoy reading. It's the the physical copy book versus the digital. I just uh, there's something different about turning the pages. I think it registers in our brains something too. But yeah, just just different times. And I'm just wondering what would you recommend to someone like myself who I, I write for the the website. Granted, it's not physical to be able to enhance my writing style or anything like that. Um. You mean in terms of who, whom to read or? Um, um, just as far as um, just any kind of maybe if I could ask you one golden nugget that I should be, okay, you should focus on. What you mean for writing for the internet? For writing for, yeah, just to make it more of a story versus just uh, rephrasing words that I've seen in other spots. Because mine's about the history. So I'm, of course, I'm always researching. Well, especially about the history is, is, is a couple things. One is you do have to make it entertaining, somewhat entertaining. Because people can go, I'm, you know, history, I'm not interested. Um, and and keep it fairly brief. I'm not good at that, but keep it fairly brief. Um, because, as I said, people don't have a, a long attention span, especially on the Internet. We go, why should I read this when I can listen to somebody tell me it? You know, um, I think we become really lazy that way. But uh, there's such a power with those words. You can have, you can have some fun. Make sure, I, I always figure when I'm doing stories that you've got to suck somebody into it. You've got to pull them into the story. So how do you do it? The lead's got to be strong. It's got to be something where you go, whoa, let me just read, read, read. Okay. And as you get down, that's why I mentioned Richard Russo, for instance, the end of each chapter, which I think is great, he leaves you hanging and you go, wait a minute, what's on that? What's the next page? And and with a, a lead, I've always thought it has to be so that it grabs you and sucks you down into the story. What are we going to look at? You write me a story about Barry Sanders. What's your hook? I was, what's your hook into this? And, you know, um, let's just say, you, you say Barry Sanders ran for 1,500 yards. Okay, I'm going to write that. Well, Barry Sanders ran for 1,500 yards. Well, but, but that's weak. That's not going to get anyone interested. Where, uh, what, find, tell me why this is different, unique. Give me something that's going to get somebody going, whoa, I didn't know that. And he's coming down. He's go mentioned Dan Daly earlier. We, I had mentioned, um, uh, Art Powell, uh, as one of the um, uh, 10 guys that we mentioned, the, the 10 best AFL players not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Dan Daly tweeted out something the other day I didn't know, which I thought was a great uh, note. I think it was in the same year, but it may not have been. But um, twice in his career, he scored five touchdowns in one game. Five in one game. 
He goes, tell me another player who's done that one. Whoa. I had no idea. And he's got the statues. And I had no idea. And I thought, that is a great note. You know, and, and so if you can get something like that and, and somehow mold into a quick story that people are interested, maybe they get interested in our power from the history. But um, if I just said, you know, our power is a great receiver for the Raiders and he played for the Jets and um, great AFL star. Tell me something that's different. I want to I want to I want to be sucked into the story. So I get to the end. and I go, whoa, I didn't know that. That was a great story. That was really interesting. And, and sometimes it's built around a, a great quote. I mean, I always look for it. Get, someone give me the out of the way, different quote. You know, um, the guy says, well, you know, we didn't give up. We, we fought all the way to the end. That's not what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who says something different. You know, Herm Edwards, you play the game to win. I mean, that was that was great. Or, you know, Denny Green. They are who we thought they were. You know, this was, this was great. Those are great. And they, of course, come up very well in podcasts and visual. But um but that's if you've got a, a, a quote that just just is outstanding. And and there have been some I just looked at and went, oh, I mean, this is this. You can't you can't replicate this. Got to go behind the story. Get your interest, your reader interested in it immediately, because otherwise it's going to quit on you. Right. Yeah. That short attention span. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as all of this goes, I mean, we covered a lot. And I know you still are active on talkoffamenetwork.com. Is there any other places or inf- information that if someone, a listener of the show, would want to learn more about Clark Judge and his work, where they should go? Um, I, well, yeah, you can look up any 49er story from the Mercury News and the 19 from 1994 to 2000. Um, then I was at CBS and then um, Fox for a long time. Um, but um, yeah, I'd say that stuff I'm proudest of is the 49er stuff from 94 to 2000. But since 2013, I've been doing this. And I'm, as I said, I'm very, very proud of this. Um, when we took this job with the carrier that we had out of Phoenix, um, it was Skyview Network. They said, where do you guys want to be in five years? And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, how do you want to be known as in five years? And I said, I'd like to be known as the, talk, the Hall of Fame guys. We talk of Fame Network. I like to be known as Hall of Fame guys. Where the guys people go to. Five years later, I'd say that's what we were, and that's what made me very proud. And I'd say Ron and Rick would say the same thing. When people ask about Hall of Fame, they generally come to us, and and I'm very proud of that. Well, there you go, the Hall of Fame guys again. That's why I wanted to bring Clark on the show because I wanted him to help us understand what it's like on Selection Saturday in that voting room a little bit peel back the curtain so we could kind of see what it's like from an outsider's perspective. And oh boy, I tell you what, like I wanted to bring him on for that, but then we got so much more. I mean, I hope you enjoyed this two-part series and were able to gain some gridiron knowledge nuggets about what it's like on the other side of the gridiron. You know, the press box, if you will. Next week, we're going to dive further into the Hall of Fame. Seems how, unfortunately, this week was supposed to be enshrinement week. But... We're not going to have it. So what we're going to do, we're going to bring Joe Horrigan on the show. Basically, the dude that was in charge of many things at the Hall of Fame for over 40 years. He just recently retired. Last year was the first year they had the entrapment without him. But let's get back into that. We're going to deal with it next week so you can understand from, again, peeling back the curtain, what it's like at the Hall of Fame and how the Hall of Fame has progressed throughout the years. So if you want to make sure you don't forget that episode when it comes out, 
Again, I'm going to tell you that I think you should sign up for the newsletter on the website, which to get to the website, you go to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that takes you over to my page on the Sports History Network, the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. And I guess I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser because next week I'm going to announce another giveaway. It's going to be another book, another autographed book. So you want to get on that newsletter as soon as you can because you'll be the first to know about it. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>